Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. A 2016 error would not be quite enough, right? If the polls missed by exactly the same margin, exactly the same states, then instead of losing those three key Rust Belt states by one point, Biden would win them by one or two points. Hello and welcome to the Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. We are just days out from the 2020 election, which has can go any number of ways. Um, and so in what has almost become a pre-election tradition here at the show, I wanted to have Nate Silver back on to talk through what we know about it now, what we think may come true uh, on, on the day, and how we should understand the overall context in which this election is playing out. Nate, of course, is the founder uh, and editor-in-chief of 538. He is a man who brought forecast modeling to political journalism. And he's also just somebody who, because of the work he does on these models, ends up diving into the guts of what matters and what doesn't about elections, what is true and what is not at a level of empirical rigor that, that few can match. And, and I always think that the secret of him is that he's not just able to do that numbers work, but he's great at communicating what those numbers actually mean, at talking through what it would mean to think about this stuff in a more disciplined way and to take probabilities and uncertainty more seriously. So I won't spend too much time on the intro here because this is a great conversation. As always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Nate Silver. Nate Silver, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be back on one of the only news podcast I listen to. No, that's very kind of you. I usually can't deal with having news in my head when I think about it constantly, but I, I love this show. I love the weeds and everything that Vox does. So thank you, Ezra. Oh, well, that's super kind of you. Well, I'm, a, a, as you know, a great a great admirer of you in 538 too. And now I'm thinking we should just maybe spend the, the hour complimenting each other, but I'm going to resist <laughs> it. Uh, I, I want to start in 2016 because I find that that is where a lot of people's heads are right now. What went wrong in the polls in 2016? Well, there are degrees of wrong. Polls often miss an election by two or three or four points, which is basically what happened in 2016. And ahead of an election like that, people need to be prepared for the fact that having a two or three or four point lead, which is basically what Clinton had in the key states, is not going to hold up 100% of the time or particularly close to 100% of the time. You might win 70% of the time, like in the 538 forecast. But the biggest single thing, I mean, I guess there are actually a couple of things that are identifiable, right? One thing that happened is that a bulk of the undecided voters in key states, Midwestern states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, whether it's in the Midwest or not is subject of debate, but those three states, most undecided voters went toward Trump. That may have been because of the news environment in the campaign, where the final stories were around the Comey letter and WikiLeaks. It may have been because people thought, hey, why not? Let's take a chance on Trump. It may have been because people did not like Hillary Clinton very much. A lot of voters who did not like both candidates, which was 20% of the electorate in 2016, a majority of them voted for Trump. If they had split 50-50, Clinton would have won nationally by five or six points or something. So the undecideds part, I don't know that you can really blame pollsters for. It's not a pollster's job to impute someone who isn't sure who they're going to vote for or won't tell you who they're going to vote for. The thing that I think you can critique a bit more is education waiting. So if you just randomly call people in the phone book or use a list of registered voters, not all people are equally likely to answer that poll. Traditionally, you get older people more than younger people, women more than men, and white people more than people of color. So polls wait. So they basically, it's hard to get a young Hispanic man on the phone, for example. If you were to find one, you might count that voter like 10x. <laughs> and if you have an old white woman, you might counter 0.5x, right? It's basically how it works. The issue, though, is those are not the only ways that have biases in who responds to the poll. It's also true that people who are college educated are more likely to respond to polls. Um, they may just be more interested in talking about the news and so forth. 
it used to be that there was no real split along educational lines and who voted for whom, but now there is. Now, college-educated voters vote Democratic, especially among white voters. It's actually the reverse among voters of color, where their college-educated Hispanics are more Republican than, than non-college Hispanics. But among white voters, which is the majority of the population, a big split between the college-educated Biden slash Clinton voters and the non-college white Trump voters. So if you oversampled relative to the population, college-educated white voters and undersampled non-college white voters, and you're going to have a poll that leaned toward Hillary Clinton too much. Again, with all that said, I mean, you know, the question is, can you defend polling in 2016? I think, you know, there are some defenses I'm making here, right? I think you can certainly defend like the 538 forecast where, you know, we had Trump's chances much higher than the consensus in part because, you know, our model is trying to answer in some sense, what is the chance that polls will be wrong? And in 2016, Clinton's lead was not that robust in part because if there was a correlated error in a certain part of the country among a certain demographic group, right? It's not like Trump spectacularly beat his polls with every single voter in the country, right? He actually underperformed his polls in some states like Arizona and California. But all he needed to have to win was just if polls underestimated the white working class vote for Trump, then he wins with Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania by one point, and then he becomes the next president. So his win was not that big of an upset if you were looking at the polls carefully. So there, there are two things I want to draw out in that, because uh, I, I think something that is very present to people is what is different now from 2016? And so there, there are two things there. One is simply what is the size of the lead? And I, I want to talk to you about how those compare and, and, and how they're distributed. But the other is this question that you brought up about how pollsters and to some degree, I guess, forecasters through that are understanding what the electorate is likely to be. There is this like crucial moment in a poll where you are weighting different people you're you're calling or reaching differently. And that requires some assumptions to be made about what the electorate is going to look like. As you say, in 2016, they underestimated, particularly in key states, the non-college white electorate. Has that been fixed? And how would we know? So on the one hand, let me back up and say Trump can still win, right? Yes. You know, in 2016, our final forecast said Trump with a 29% chance, and that came through. Nothing about that chance coming through says anything either way about whether a 12% chance com comes through, but there is a 12% chance, and that's not trivial. It's flipping a coin, it comes up tails three times, but it is a different landscape. So one difference is that there are fewer undecided voters this year. So that first mechanism that I described that helped Trump is probably not going to be a factor. They just aren't, I mean, Trump could win every undecided voter in these polls, and he would still narrowly lose the Electoral College. How, how big is the difference there? How many undecideds were there towards the end in 2016 versus now? In 2016, it was around, I think, 13% undecided plus third party. We lump those together because a lot of times people will use a third party vote as a proxy for undecided, or they'll decide, you know what, I don't really want to vote for Joe Jorgensen because Joe Jorgensen's not going to win, so I'll vote for Trump after all, right? So that was around, I think, 13 or 14% in 2016, it's around 6% this year. So that's a pretty big difference. Biden's lead is also a little bit larger. It depends on whether you're talking about Clinton kind of at her peak post-access Hollywood, when they are frankly pretty similar, or toward the end of the campaign after the Comey letter where it got quite close. That got down to three or four points in national polls and, and two or three points in what we call the average tipping point state, which are the states that are most likely to decide the election. This year, Biden is ahead by more like five points in the average tipping point state. So you can definitely find cases in the past where there was a five-point polling error in key states. Um, that's why Trump can win. But a 2016 error would not be quite enough, right? If the polls missed by exactly the same margin, exactly the same states, then instead of losing those three key Rust Belt states by one point, Biden would win them by one or two points. He might also hold on in Arizona where the polls were fine actually in 2016. So, you know, it would be a close call, but one that wound up electing Biden, pending court <laughs> disputes, et cetera, in the end. And so what about the ways in which some of those key states are being pulled? I was looking at a, a chart the data analyst David Shore made where, where he was showing that in 2018, the polls, although closer to the to the correct mark overall, were underweighting Republican voters in some of those same Midwestern states they did in, in, in 2016, because even as they were trying to use education as a as a 
proxy and weighting differently from it, it, it didn't fully measure what was what was getting missed in the Republican electorate. Do you think that the way there those states are being polled is better or simply there are more polls, which is helpful? Like, do you think there's anything different in how one should look at those polls specifically? If you're trying to capture implicit factors that don't neatly correlate with the demographic group, some political orientation, right? Then yeah, maybe even within the people who are non-college educated, maybe those people are more are less Trumpian than the people that um, won't answer your polls. So that always is a concern. I think, though, there is a long history of the direction of polling error not being predictable, by which I mean that if the polls miss in one direction, say Republican direction in one year, then they're equally likely the next year to miss again in the Republican direction or in the Democratic direction or have one of those years like the 2018 midterms where they're kind of exactly on target. And it's because polling is a dynamic science, right? And pollsters don't want to be wrong. And they particularly don't want to be wrong the same way twice in a row, right? So they will do all types of new things, some of which are probably pretty wise, some of which might not be as wise, might be a little hackish, but they are adjusting. And also the marketplace of which pollsters are conducting polls, right? You have a whole bunch of kind of clones now of Rasmussen reports type of pollsters that are not officially GOP partisan pollsters, but behave like partisan pollsters. Trafalgar Group is another one, which means they seem to be more concerned with influencing the media narrative than with accurately polling the race. It's my opinion, right? We still include them in the 538 average, and they affect the average and, and bring Biden's odds down a little bit. But those firms probably wouldn't be as bold if it weren't for 2016. They're like, well, we call the 2016 race right. So therefore, you know, even though the polls have Biden up six points in Pennsylvania, the nonpartisan polls, you know, we have him up one and we got it right in 2016. So believe us, right? You know, those firms exist because of the polling error in 2016. And so it's almost like the efficient market hypothesis a little bit, which I'm sure you've debated at points in time on the weeds and whatnot. But, you know, polls can be wrong, but it's hard to know in which direction they'd be wrong. If they were wrong right now, I think it is easy to imagine for people how they would be wrong in Donald Trump's direction because people lived through that and have a, a visceral feeling of it. But but as you pointed out many times in 2012, the polls were a little bit wrong, but in Barack Obama's direction, um, yeah. he, he outperformed. If the polls were wrong in Joe Biden's direction, what do you think would be the likeliest reason why? So I think you have a story that would start with the fact that Maybe pollsters were not prepared for this early voting surge. I want to be very careful. I think to a first approximation, people should kind of not make any inferences based on early voting. But if we are in the world now where Democrats beat their polls, then then that might be a factor where maybe it turns out that if you've already voted, so you have likely voters in polls, right? Those are people that based on asking them or some combination of their vote history and responses, you say that person is likely to vote, I'll include them in the poll, Right. Well, some of those people won't vote. Some of those people will not have their car start on election day, or they will have a COVID outbreak in their area and not vote, or any number of reasons, right? Only 90% of or something of likely voters actually wind up voting. However, if you've actually already voted, then you're 100%, right? So it may be that Democrats weren't given enough extra credit for early voting. By most measures, we're probably headed to a turnout that's considerably higher than 2016, maybe 155 million is our estimate. Um, versus 136, 137, right? There is evidence that a majority of those voters are Democratic. And if, if the polls were too conservative about accounting for them, then you might lowball Joe Biden. I'd also note that like, it's worth thinking about incentives here. If you have a choice between two turnout models when you're a pollster, one is kind of a newfangled turnout model that accounts for early voting, and one is a more traditional conservative model, right? And one of them has Biden up six points in Wisconsin, and one of them would have him up 10 points, right? There's not much incentive to publish the 10-point lead. If Trump wins, you're going to look that much worse, right? People don't care that much about the margin. You know, They weren't going to blame you if, if Biden wins by 10 when you had him up by six. They'll say it was a pretty good poll nevertheless, right? So I think there are a lot of incentives to be sure that you're not missing the white working class voters that may not apply to Hispanic voters in Arizona, or to younger voters who, frankly, have not been reliable voters in the past, but are evidently turning out this year. Help me imagine this. So right now, uh, as we are speaking in the 538 forecast, Biden has an 88 and 100 uh, shot of winning the election. So if, if Trump wins, you're pretty far over there on uh, on that side of the, the probabilistic outcomes. 
What would that same kind of win look like for Biden? If you go all the way to the other side of of, of the era, so he's in like that, like the 12 percent of best outcomes for him. What is he winning in that world? Like, what is the equivalent? So, yeah. So Trump right now has a 10, 15 percent chance. And that's based on there being about a four and a half or five point polling error in his favor. Right. If there's a five point uniform polling error, then Pennsylvania is a toss up and the Electoral College overall is therefore a toss up. So a five point polling error in Biden's favor means he wins by 13 or 14 points. So number one, that would be the largest margin of defeat for an incumbent since Hoover. It would exceed the margin that Jimmy Carter lost to Ronald Reagan in 1980. Number two, it would mean that Biden would win almost all of the states that are commonly considered competitive. So that would include probably Texas, Ohio, Iowa, and Georgia. There actually is a gap after Texas where once you get beyond Texas, there's like no other toss-up state. The next most likely Biden win would probably be Alaska of all places. In our simulations, right, good Biden nights tend to peak at him winning Texas, right? Beyond that would take a really big polling miss, which is possible, right? But if Biden got more than whatever his 420 electoral votes, right, then we start to get to points where maybe people would even say, oh my gosh, you know, Biden went by so much. What's wrong with the polls? I'd be I'd be happy to have that conversation, right? Because like I think people pay too much attention to like the wins and losses and not the margin in a poll, right? So if Biden wins by 17 points or something nationally, which would be one of the biggest polling misses in years, then polls should get criticized for that. I don't think it's going to happen, but you know, but that's how we look at things at least. When you think about the the coverage of the campaign, you've done I, I thought really good work after 2016 looking at, at the way the coverage underemphasized uncertainty. Um it, it sort of you know, a lot of people have published these indexes of what all the forecasters were saying. It's like, well, they all said Hillary Clinton is probably going to win. And 538 gave her a 72 percent chance and Huffington Post gave her a 99 percent chance and so on. And so it just seemed to to, to people like Hillary Clinton was going to win. How do you think the, the coverage has adapted? How do you think the narrative of this ha- has has changed? Um, is it better? Has it gone too far in the other direction of only emphasizing uncertainty? How do you rate it from your from your media critic per, uh, perspective? I was harsh of how the press covered 2016 from a lot of angles. I think the coverage has been better this year. The notion that Biden is favored but doesn't have the election in the bag, right? That's right to a first approximation. Now, if you're someone like me who is kind of very probabilistic minded, right, and is used to things like poker and sports where you have to kind of distinguish small probabilities, you know, that range might encompass everything from Biden being a 60% favorite to buy and being a 93% favorite or something or 95%. I'm not sure that should necessarily change the tone of of coverage all that much, right? So I think if you kind of force people to like write down a probability, it might be too low, but like directionally, people should be worried about the chance that Trump could win, right? Because until we get to like a 10-point Biden margin, not nationally, but in the tipping point state, right, there is some precedent for it. So probably the biggest polling error of all time at least the biggest last minute polling error is 1948 when Harry Truman trailed by five points in the final Gallup poll. That was the only poll back then, basically, wound up winning by four. So there's a nine point polling error in the past data set somewhere, which is not that large a sample. So we don't know if that occurs very rarely or somewhat rarely, but there's a precedent for it, right? And so we're within the realm where there is precedent for someone like Trump winning despite his deficit in the polls. We are also way beyond the range where it's too close to call, right? And so so I don't really sweat that much if the implied probability is 70% when really it's 85%. The other way around, I might worry about more, which is kind of one of the reasons we were kind of pissed off after 2016 is we felt we spent a lot of time in 2016 pushing back against coverage that took Clinton's chances of being too serious despite a lot of uncertainty in the polling that year and got a lot of crap from people for being too bullish on Trump. So I don't mind if news coverage is the way it's been this year. The Ezra Klein Show will be back after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, 
Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Let's talk about uncertainty. I think one of the really interesting things you've done in your model in 2020 is add this uncertainty index. And at the same time, there's this very strange dimension to this race happening in this very tumultuous moment where it's been very stable, um, one of the most stable we've ever seen. So I, I want to talk a bit about both sides of that. But but let's begin with the uncertainty index itself. How did you think about that? What goes into it? And, and, and what has it taught you so far? So one issue you have with presidential forecasting is that you don't have a terribly large sample size. You know, we use a prior based on economic data on the theory that a better economy helps the incumbent. American economic data really only goes back reliably to World War II. Uh, we went back and tried to use some other estimates dating back to 1880 to expand the sample size a bit. You know, there's basically no polling at all before 1936, and there's not really robust polling until maybe 1972 or 1980. You don't have the huge volume of state polling until like 2000, basically, right? So you're dealing with small sample sizes. When that's the case, then your choice of indicators can matter a lot. So to take an example in the economic realm, one variable that some models used was disposable income. That went way, way up in the spring because of the CARES Act. So if you had a model based on that, then you would say, oh my God, this is the best economy of all time. Therefore, Trump's going to win by 20 points, right? If you had a model based on GDP, it would say, oh my gosh, this is the worst economy of all time. Trump's going to lose. There was like one model that literally had Trump winning negative electoral votes, right? So the lesson here is that when you have a small sample size of data and you can't clearly distinguish between a bunch of correlated indicators, it's best to actually average them all together instead of having to pick. That's more robust, right? So we had an economic index I was alluding to before that did that. But another key dimension is that some elections are more volatile and more prone to polling error and polling shifts than others, right? So we analyzed lots of factors that historically are correlated with uncertainty, and they kind of point in opposite directions this year. So on the one hand, the fact that you have few undecided voters and few third-party voters factors into that index, right? The fact that you have stable polling, stable polling tends to predict stable polling, right? The fact that you have higher polarization, those all factor in and lead the model to be more certain about the outcome. But there are other factors that point in the other direction. The two most important ones are the degree of economic uncertainty, where you've never seen GDP shift as much from one quarter to the next. And if you have a model that accounts for an economic prior, then if that's very uncertain prior, then you have to account for that, right? The other factor is the amount of news. This one I think has become more kind of famous or infamous, but we use an index based on how many full-width New York Times headlines there are. And the more of those you have, the more uncertain the news environment. So when, for example, we had Donald Trump acquire COVID, that was a banner headline in the New York Times for, I think, three or four days or something like that, right? That is something that moved the polls. But as you were alluding to, these monumental events have, have not moved the polls very much. You know, there was not much movement around when, well, I guess there's been some, right? Just very muted. You know, when the US first had our kind of COVID crisis, which I remember is kind of Rudy Gobert, Tom Hanks day, right? Initially, there was a little bit of a sympathy bounce for Trump. That began to wear off, right? Then in June, when you have this kind of second, I don't know if it's a wave, I'm funny about that language, but the second kind of peak that's more in Southern states. Plus, you have the George Floyd protest. I mean, that moved things a little bit, right? But these are these monumental historic events. And you go from Trump plus six or uh, Trump minus six to Trump minus nine or something, right? Which is not nothing, right? Six versus nine makes some difference. But like, but you know, that means like one and a half percent of Americans are switching their vote. It's just a three point net swing. And so it's like, it's not very many. People seem pretty darn locked in um, about how they feel about Trump and about Joe Biden. Do you find this part of it surprising? So one thing I like about your uncertainty index, I wrote a whole book about polarization. And like one of the things you could just summarize that book as saying is that as polarization goes up, American politics becomes more stable in terms of people's preferences because of the 
decisions are clearer for them. And you guys put that into the model. But I wrote that book and I would have told you if you had asked me, if you had told me a year ago what was going to happen over the next year, coronavirus, 200,000 Americans dead, the kind of economic volatility we've seen, the way Donald Trump has responded, I would not have predicted that one year later, his approval rating would be up by one point and his disapproval up by two points. Like that is just not how I would have seen that going. Are you surprised by the level of stability? Does it look really different to you than it has looked in the past? I think the hypothesis that like polarization begets more stable public opinion, I think I think that's a pretty sound hypothesis, right? And I think it has been tested in a pretty good way this year. Although who knows? You know, one other prediction of polarization polarization is that you get narrower outcomes, right? So you have more close elections. You know, I'm not sure that Trump was necessarily going to lose this election absent COVID. I mean, it'll be a famous debate if he is to go ahead and lose, right? But like, you know, I mean, there were um, points in time early in the year. If you look at what were polls of Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania saying in March or April, they were very close races within a, within a point or two, particularly in Wisconsin, for example, right? So things have shifted in ways that are meaningful, but like not, I mean, only in relative terms, like, you know, because a, I mean, one other funny thing about this election is that like, because of Trump's electoral college advantage, there is not much middle ground between a Biden landslide and a extremely competitive down to the wire electoral college photo finish. If Biden is ahead by five points nationally in the final polling average, right? And he wounds up, if Trump beats his polls by two points, that's a toss up, right? If Biden beats his polls by two points, then it's Obama 2008, which people consider a landslide usually at seven points, right? So that electoral college edge makes a big difference and is kind of why there's been this kind of very bifurcated <laughs> binary kind of world where it seems like we're oscillating between like, oh my gosh, 2016 again, and oh my gosh, you know, Trump is Herbert Hoover. Let me push on this just a, a little bit. So there's a, a fact by Alan Abramowitz, I'm sorry, a finding by Alan Abramowitz, a political scientist that I, I think about a lot. And I'm sorry, because I'm doing this from memory, so I might have it very slightly off. No problem. But what he found was that in the 70s, into the 80s, when you looked at how much a state, an individual state's vote would change from one presidential election to the next, as I remember it, it was either nine or 13 points. It was pretty big. And then since the aughts, it has been 1.9%. And so it seems that there's been this really, really big drop in volatility that, that the degree to which a state's previous vote in the presidential election predicts its next is not perfect by any means. And in a big election like this one, you know, you might have states swinging by three, four, you know, even five points, but that the whole thing has just gotten more narrow. We're talking about primarily from the the who will win and the forecasting question, but I'm also just interested in it from the question of how politics works, that there is a different incentive set for politicians who are at real risk of losing voters they had before than there is for politicians who almost no matter how they perform are going to keep the voters they had before, which strikes me as being much more true to the situation Donald Trump is in now. And, and so I'm curious how you how you assess that from from the bigger level, too. There are two big fundamental things that govern every aspect of American politics is one thing I, I do believe is that political parties are quite efficient at finding the optimal strategies to get 50% of the vote. However, the system is weighed in their favor, right? But the two factors are number one, the increasing degree of polarization, one of the probably the most robust trend of the past 30 years that shows up in all types of ways. And number two is the GOP advantage because of overrepresentation of rural areas, particularly in the Senate. I mean, we talked before about what is a landslide. Obama won by seven points in 2016 and that, or 2008, and that's a landslide. Well, the GOP has about a six-point inherent advantage in the Senate, meaning the median state, which I believe is like Georgia, is six points more Republican than the country as a whole. So in a year where Democrats are up by seven or eight points, then they can win a state like Georgia, but they can only win it in a landslide, right? So that has a couple of implications, right? One is that you have kind of public policy catered to an older, more rural, white electorate, right? Because the GOP, believe me, the GOP does not take advantage of this by saying, oh, we're going to win every election for all of eternity, right? We're going to have a stable majoritarian coalition. Instead, they say, okay, we're going to actually pass very aggressive policies that maybe the median voter would not like. But we don't need to win the median voter. We have to win a R plus six voter, in an R plus six state. And so, I mean, that governs a whole ton of, of decisions that they make. 
I, I want to hold on how you calculated this for a second because I think it's really important for for people to 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 get this. So so what you did, as I understand, it, and tell me if this is wrong, is you basically stack the states on how likely they are to vote Republican all the way up to Democrat. And then the question is like, which state is the twenty fifth state, right? Which state controls the majority in in that in that structure? And that's Georgia, which is significantly to the right uh, of the median voter. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I forget exactly. It's like, you know, Georgia, North Carolina. I mean, it's a group of states that are often quite competitive, right? But they're competitive in these environments like 2018 and 2020 that are very democratic environments, right? The states that are kind of toss-ups now, Texas is another one that's not that far from the baseline. Actually, one thing about Texas, Democrats are obviously more competitive now in Texas, Georgia, Arizona than they once were those are all pretty big states, so they have a big payoff eventually as far as the Electoral College goes. But Texas also has only two senators. So if Texas somehow becomes a blue state, let's call it like it's a Virginia, right? A state that usually is blue. I think it's not going to happen in right away, but who knows, maybe in 12 years. Then that becomes tougher in the Electoral College for, for Republicans, but they might still have even more of an advantage in the Senate. How does that change for Democrats if they add D.C. and there are questions about how what Puerto Rico would want, but let's say Puerto Rico is offered statehood and took it. Like how would how would that change the the Senate map? I think that shifts it to around a plus three or a plus four if they were to add D.C. and Puerto Rico. Even if Puerto Rico were a swing state, it's still if you treat it as zero, it's still better than the median right now for Democrats. Um, if you added D.C. and Puerto Rico and divided California in thirds, where all those Californias were at least um, somewhat blue, then it would be still a plus two Republican edge, right? So they basically have like like four extra states, four or five extra states, right? You I mean, if you think about like all the Dakotas, right, and the Wyomings and the Idahos and states like that, I mean, there are some, you know, these small New England states are low population and are fairly democratic, but there are just a lot of states in the Mountain West and the Midwest that um, are Republican and and still have two senators. All right. So you have a six six to seven point edge for Republicans, not edge. It's pretty big, pretty big handicap there for Republicans in the Senate. What does the Electoral College look like to you? How, how big is the GOP advantage there and how durable is that advantage given what demographics look like going forward? So it was about three points in 2016. So Clinton lost Wisconsin tipping point state by about a point when she won the popular vote by two points. So it's around a three point gap. For Biden, it looks pretty similar. It may be two points, two and a half points and not three. We'll see the exact number, but it's pretty similar. I do think the electoral college gap is more ephemeral. In 2008 and 2012, if you had had a photo finish election like you had in 2016, Obama probably would have won the electoral college. He outperformed his national margins in the tipping point states. So it can flip back and forth pretty easily. I mean, if again, if, if Texas flipped, then that would make a big difference. The one state that is underrated as a problem for Democrats, though, is Florida, which has a ton of electoral votes. And you might think that if I were describing, okay, well, these more diverse coastal states will become more democratic, right? That describes Florida, right? These states with growing population and these multi-ethnic cities will become more democratic, like in Houston or in Phoenix, right? Or Atlanta. Florida, if anything, has been one of Biden's worst states this year relative to um, relative to the fact that he's ahead by eight points or nine points nationally. So Florida has been a big problem for for Democrats. Uh, I want to say two quick things on, on the Electoral College. One, if people want to dig into this, Jesse Wegman just wrote a good book called Let the People Pick the President, the Case for Abolishing the, the Electoral College. And something that I just think is sort of a shame here. I loathe the Electoral College and, and, and want to get rid of it because it's just really a crazy thing to have in a political system. It doesn't make any sense or operate in any way like it was intended to operate, um, even if you believe that that intent was a reasonable thing, which I mostly don't. But it's a shame that what has happened is not that Republicans won through the Electoral College in 2000 and then Democrats say won through it in 2012 or in 2016. So that both sides now feel there is this almost like random element of chance that can take an election they've won in the popular vote away from them. And instead, it just has begun to feel, um, even as you, even as you know, Nate, that, that it could be more ephemeral than that. It has just begun to feel like part of the Republican artillery. And so it's a simple, it's a perfectly polarized debate, which is protecting something that now just, it seems like it just 
creates an almost element of random chance. There isn't a particular reason to think it is doing something useful. It's just doing something. You can imagine a world where it hands the election to Democrats. And it just in a in an in an electoral system where the stakes are high and the level of enmity is high and the, the possibility of legitimacy crises are high, it just adds a certain element of risk into everything and a certain level of potential illegitimacy into everything that just strikes me as it's really unwise. But because it's coded as a partisan advantage for Republicans, you're never, you're, you you can't get rid of it until that changes. Yeah, look, I mean, if you're looking at the different branches of government, I, I think the Electoral College actually bothers me less than the I guess, design kind of effect of the Senate over representing rural states and by the random nature of when a very old person on the Supreme Court happens to die or chooses to retire. I think those two things have a much greater magnitude impact. I mean, I actually think an election like this actually presents a positive case for the Electoral College, which is that if you have problems because of legal disputes in one state, they can be isolated because of that state, right? Um, Another issue is like, okay, states have different laws about who can turn out and when you can vote, right? I mean, it's interesting. It would probably help Democrats, right? Imagine an under popular vote that Democratic states want to expand the voting franchise and Republicans want to contract it, right? Well, all of a sudden, there's a competition because if, if in Alabama it's hard to vote, then maybe a comparably sized Democratic state, you know, Maryland or whatnot, will have a lot more votes than Alabama if it's easy to vote in Maryland, for example. So wait, but that seems like a case against the Electoral College to me, that it would create an incentive for then Alabama to make it possible for people to vote potentially. I guess I'm making a couple of different points and maybe contradicting myself. I mean, I do think that like the fact that you have different rules in every state and different jurisprudence in every state means that it may make sense to have some way to cordon off how votes are awarded in every state instead of compiling them together, right? So I would be in favor of abolishing the Electoral College, but I would also want uniform rules about how you can vote in federal elections in every state. That's a big <laughs> thing to take on, right? And you can argue that, hey, maybe we like kind of federalism in one state lets people in jail vote and one state does not. Maybe that's okay if you're a fan, a fan of federalism, but like, but they're tied together, right? If you have different rules in every state, which are more pertinent this year under COVID, then I think you probably need some electoral college-like mechanism. Do you have an estimate on whether or not or how big the House lean for Republicans is. And I know it changes because of gerrymandering and we're, and we're going to go through that again um, post-census. But we've talked about the Senate. We've talked about the Electoral College. Do you, do you have an estimate for that at the House level? It's a little hard to estimate in the House because it partly is tied into incumbency and kind of once you gain the incumbency advantage like Democrats have now, then that can be hard to overcome. But it's probably around three or four points. It's been a bit of a moving target because you had after 2010, very Republican year. So you had a lot of gerrymandering that favored the GOP. Also a lot of clustering of Democrats in urban areas, right? The fact that the most Democratic areas are more Democratic than the most rural areas are Republican, that creates an inequity that makes the median district more Republican-leaning. With that said, you had a lot of suburban districts that have kind of become what are sometimes now called dummy-manders, right? Where if, if the suburbs of Houston or Dallas shift by a certain amount, right? And you beat all these districts that, that are R plus 10, 10 years ago, and things have shifted by 12 points, then all of a sudden, now you have it perfectly inefficiently configured the other way where Democrats narrowly win all these districts in Texas or, or the suburbs of Atlanta or California or whatnot. So that advantage is less profound now. One other inequity here, although it's kind of partly how parties kind of choose to play by different rules, is that when Republicans get the trifecta in a state, they will generally speaking, gerrymander as much as they can get away with, right? Democrats will often appoint some type of nonpartisan commission. So they fight things back to 50-50, or maybe things there are a little bit of implicit rules that help Democrats a little bit, but maybe not that much. And so that's an issue too. And one other thing to keep in mind is like, because the GOP gerrymanders were so effective in 2010 in some states, right? It's hard for Democrats to win back like the state legislature in states like Wisconsin. So these can have effects that usually you wipe the slate relatively clean after 10 years. But if you're in a state where you don't have a lot of demographic change, where it favors a party that already had the gerrymandering edge, then it can kind of become a repeating error that persists for for decades, potentially. I got to tell you, just talking about the American political system, it's always inspiring. <laughs> I mean, just the the ideals, it's, it's just a, a, a glittering example of how to make people feel good about political participation. <laughs> it's fucking crazy, man. Okay. Um, something you 
said a couple minutes ago that I want to pick back up on before I collapse into a pit of frustration is you mentioned how Republicans often spend their geographic advantage on a harder right agenda. They they pass policies like tax cuts that are oriented towards rich people. Um, they run candidates like Donald Trump. I mean, if Donald Trump had been exposed to the popular vote outcome in 2016, he wouldn't have won. And I think there'd been a lot of frustration among Republicans that the Trumpist faction of the party had nominated a candidate who blew a winnable election. And so the Republican Party would have potentially reformed itself. The Democrats have the opposite version of this, where they have to win by these pretty big margins um, at the presidential level right now with the Electoral College, at the Senate level, as you've talked about, at the, the House level to a smaller degree. And so they've actually responded to that. And Joe Biden was their response in, in 2020. Um, Joe Biden was not the favorite pick of most Democratic factions that I know of, but he was an answer to a particular concern, right, which had to do with white working class voters in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, like who would be acceptable to the kinds of voters Democrats feared they were losing. And as far as I can read the polls, it seems like that has been strategically successful, that he is actually changing the coalition Clinton had a little bit, where he's losing some voters she had who were, it's grim to put it this way, electorally inefficient, and picking up some voters Trump had who were very electorally efficient. How how in what you've seen has Biden changed the the, the coalition? Is that bet paying off for Democrats, or do you think this would be the same under any Democrat? I mean, if you have, I mean, you had fairly explicit contrast between the two Democratic finalists, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, where Bernie's pitch explicitly was, hey, we are going to win this with the movement of people with high turnout of younger people, people of color, right? We're going to win this with turnout to the point where like, I remember going back when we could travel, right? Going to their rallies in Nevada and New Hampshire, right? You know, they were saying, we don't need anyone else to come on board, right? We're the biggest <laughs> coalition. So we're going to win and we're going to win the White House that way too, right? So turnout, turnout, turnout. Whereas Biden is persuasion, persuasion, median voter kind of thing. The median Democratic voter liked Medicare for all, but likes the public option a little bit more and felt like it seemed a little safer electorally. So for better or worse, Joe Biden's pitch has come true, meaning that like the reason Joe Biden is way ahead in these polls is not because Democratic turnout is particularly high relative to GOP turnout. If you look at the partisan identification, these polls are often actually pretty even. It's because he's winning independence by 15 points and moderates by 30 points and winning back a fair number of Obama Trump voters and keeping a fair number of Romney Clinton voters, right? The persuadable voters are, are sticking with Biden. Now, it may turn out that actually Biden has this turnout edge on top of that. That polls aren't fully capturing. But what the story the polls are telling is that Biden is persuading the median voter not to back Donald Trump. And in some ways, it's I mean, in some ways, like Biden's whole campaign has been like kind of revenge for all these thought to be discredited political science theories. Right. You know, the party decides. Right. The fact that like literally you had Pete Buttigieg and, and Amy Klobuchar, all these people fly to like one <laughs> destination on the eve of the most important set of primaries and endorse Biden. It was like some absurdist caricature of the party decides. Right. And it worked. Here is like the comeback of kind of the median voter theorem where you try to appear a little bit more moderate and maybe it works depending on if the polls are right or not. So it is it is interesting that Biden is kind of a throwback politician in so many ways and that's playing out. Right. And he's also a throwback in the sense he's very coalitional. He's not a very ideological guy. Right. People kind of he kind of gets branded as a moderate, which I think also reflects kind of the the bias that if you're an older white man, right, you can have the same policies and you'll be branded as much less radical than a young Latina might. But still, he's actually perfectly calibrates himself to kind of what the median Democratic voter wants and is good about kind of listing different coalitions within the party. And that's kind of that's why he's been successful over a long time. He's very transactional and he's good at listening to different demands from different party constituencies. Yes, Clancho will be back after a short break. One of the resonances for me here is 04 to 08. So I remember in 2004, after Democrats lose in this gutting way to, to George W. Bush, um, after nominating John Kerry, 
there is this view the Democrats have to win back the heartland. They, you know, start thinking about guys like Brian Schweitzer in Montana, that they they have to go back, like they they can't be these liberal cosmopolitans who speak French and went to Yale and, you know, are tall and whatever else. And then what actually happens in 08 is they run Barack Hussein Obama from Chicago, Illinois, and like have this gigantic, gigantic victory. Um, and so there's this way in which the immediate post-election punditry really fails, right? Because there was a desire to refight the last war, right? They were responding to 04, but 08 is just a different election in a different context and something else ends up working. And, and I feel like this happened here too, that there was a lot of reaction in the Democratic coalition and partly in punditry to, to why did it work? Why did Donald Trump work? And I think that one of the very dominant strands was he gave people something to vote for. You may not like him, but at least he gave you something to vote for. You may not like him, but at least he doesn't think the system is okay. And so there was a, a rise in politicians who in one way or another responded to that, right? Populist politicians on the left, like Bernie Sanders, or in a different way, Elizabeth Warren, um, other kind of figures on, on, uh, on the left who were going to go at this through matching sort of Donald Trump's like energy, but, but, but really pushing hard on a diversifying America and an inclusive America. And here comes Joe Biden with this, like, I almost want to call it a strategy of being inoffensive, right? It's like, popular policies, but none of them are all that big um, and like says nice stuff and like is pro a diversifying America, but doesn't himself represent anything all that uh, all that transformative in it. He's established he's an establishment politician, but a kind of nice one. I think that one of the the dominant ideas after 2016 was that what Trump had, the Democrats didn't have was enthusiasm. And right now, and I don't know that it would work in other contexts, um, if it wasn't Donald Trump that Biden was running against, I think this might be looking very different. But that you see in these polls, 70-30, Trump voters say they're voting for Trump, not against Biden. And roughly 70-30, Biden voters say they're voting against Trump, not for Biden. And you would think that wouldn't be working. But in a way, it is. Donald Trump provides the enthusiasm, and Joe Biden just keeps denying him something really significant to run against. They can't can't seem to frame him as too liberal. He can't seem to frame him. Um, he He's like sort of normal demographic. Bigotry isn't working on him. Biden is just like, it's like this almost like weird rope-a-dope of an electoral strategy that seems to be paying off, I think, much to the chagrin of like more ideological actors in politics who don't like this form of politics, like it's kind of boring. And then a lot of pundits who said you needed like you needed to match Donald Trump in the opposite way to win this election. Yeah. So number one, I think to say 2016 was about enthusiasm is, I I think, a misdiagnosis of 2016. If you look at David Shore's work, he's tried to break this down. It says probably 80% of the shift toward Trump was from Obama Trump voters and because of persuasion and not turnout. And one basic piece of math behind that is that if I persuade you, Ezra, to switch from Trump to Biden, right, that's a net plus two for Biden, right? You were a negative one and now you're a plus one. If you weren't going to turn out, now you vote for Biden. Okay, great. You're a plus one, but only half as valuable as if I get you to switch. So persuasion matters more. Also, though, I think we have seen kind of the different preferences of pundits themselves and the media landscape shift, right? Where the media used to be very kind of centrist and way too concerned about, you know, balance budgets and whatnot, right? And so they'd say, well, the correct strategy is to appeal to independents when they were kind of really saying is the correct strategy is to appeal to the meet the press panel, people like me and my cohort, right? And now as kind of media has become in ways I think are mostly good, that you have kind of people on the far left and on the far right and every center left and center right nook and cranny have their say, right? And there are more interesting notions of what it means to be objective, what it means to be correct. But there's certainly more energy now on the on the polls there. And so that kind of leads, I think, more of an assumption that, hey, um, maybe the Bernie strategy, right? Pursue really liberal strategies. They'll get people really excited. Now we kind of have our cake and eat it too. It's great to do Medicare for all, and it'll help us electorally, right? I think the evidence mostly points against that, but the conventional wisdom went from underrating that to to overrating that probably. You all just did a really good piece on what keeps voters from voting, potential voters from voting. And, and I want to go back to the, the Bernie theory here for a minute, because I, I think we weren't 100% fair on it, which is one thing that was in his idea wasn't simply that we just needed who we already had, but they had a, a real theory about low attachment voters, right? People who don't turn out. And the idea was that they're not given a clear enough choice. I mean, it was a very sort of almost like a Barry Goldwaterian choice, not an echo idea, which is 
if you come out and you really tell these people um, how you'll help them through Medicare for all, through a Green New Deal, through through other policies like that, that they will have a reason to vote that the Joe Bidens and Hillary Clintons of the world haven't given them or have muddled so much and in some cases even become Trump curious. But that didn't really pan out in the primary. A lot of those people didn't come out to vote for for Bernie Sanders, um, either in the closed primaries or in the open primaries, which is part of the problem for him. But also, there's just a lot of questions about why don't people vote? I mean, we often have turnout in the 50 to 60 percent range for presidential elections. Yeah. Um, what do what do we know, in your view, uh, about the about these sort of marginal voters, people who who may not turn out, but who may turn out, but often do not? So let me say one other quick thing about Bernie, just because since the primary ended right when kind of COVID began, we never got to have all these interesting takes afterward about kind of the strategic choices in that primary. I think in some ways Sanders was a victim of his own success in 2016 and that he did so well at turning out some of these lower propensity voters and making them very engaged that there weren't a lot of new ones still to find in the electorate, right? That's a smaller point. But yeah, look, this kind of policy nexus where your views on 10 or 12 different issues are highly correlated for strong partisans, right? That doesn't make sense um, for a lot of voters, right? There was a great episode of the Daily, the New York Times podcast that had our kind of friend at the upshot, Nate Cohn, on talking about like what the polls show. They would kind of randomly pick voters. And voters were talking about the Amy Coney Barrett nomination, right? There was one woman who was very smart. She's like, well, I'm pro-life, but if I'm really pro-life, then is Donald Trump really the pro-life candidate in this election? Thinking more broadly about what that means, right? So she probably feels very conflicted. She likes Donald Trump's Supreme Court picks, right? She doesn't like his treatment of women or how he acts on Twitter or that he doesn't seem to want to have a healthcare policy in the country, right? So I think as things become more polar, then yeah, the people who drop out of the electorate are people who like who might have heterodox political views. And we can debate about whether those are coherent or not, right? I tend to think that they probably are often perfectly coherent. You know, what does pro-life mean, for example? But you know, that's one group of people, the other group of people are people who feel like it's going to be hard for them to vote or their vote doesn't matter, right? So voter suppression has different effects. In the short run, if you try to suppress the vote and people find out about it, right, they might be more vote motivated to vote. In the long run, though, if you just know that, hey, every time I have to vote, there's a long line and I was really excited to do it in 2008, maybe 2020 is another year when I was really excited to do it, but 2024, you know, I, I'm a busy person. Why do I have to wait for two or three hours in line? That can have a cumulative effect as well. If you feel like you don't have political power, then um, then that can have long run effects too. How, how much do you think issues end up mattering in elections? One implication of the polarization and stability conversation we were having earlier is that there is less penalty. And there's some data showing this for nominating candidates who are more ideologically coherent or depending depending how you want to call it, extreme, more liberal, more conservative. Because, you know, even if you think um, Ted Cruz is really conservative or Donald Trump is kind of nuts, like you, you, you can't stand Hillary Clinton because she's quite liberal. Or, or on the other side, you know, even if you think Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders is like a little more liberal than you've typically been, been comfortable with, I mean, you're not going to vote for Donald Trump. Like, look at this guy. So, would there have been a, a big difference based on issue positions? Donald Trump seems to think so. He seems to keep trying to run against the Bernie Sanders agenda. But I'm I'm a little skeptical that I really wonder how differently Biden and, and, and Bernie would have performed. So we actually find that there still is a pretty big effect from where you line up on the issues. So the way we look at this, because it's a little bit hard to define liberal versus conservative, we look at how often members of Congress vote with their party. And members who break with their party more often do quite a bit better, other things held equal. And that advantage has not diminished since 1990, which is when our data set starts on that. What you do see, though, is that it's very hard to be a Joe Manchin or a Susan Collins, just not to endorse Joe Manchin or Susan Collins-ism, right? But it's pretty hard in an area of high polarization not to lose a primary challenge not to be upbraided by your president or party leader for not going along with what the rest of the party is doing this more kind of parliamentary style coalition. So I think there are advantages to being a moderate. It's just kind of hard territory to stake out and maintain, right? You used to have quite a few members who would cross over, right? Now you have, you know, two or three out of a hundred senators that do so with, with any degree of regularity. How wide do you think, and I know that COVID makes this harder, but, you know, towards the end of the primary, depending on who is ahead, Biden and Sanders are polling pretty similarly against Donald Trump. Do you think they would have performed very differently? 
I think that Bernie would have given Trump a different vector to campaign on, where you can say, oh, the socialists are coming, right? I mean, the fact that he's kind of will say, oh, Biden is a Trojan horse for AOC and Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, right? Well, I mean, maybe that argument works for some voters, but you're also conceding that Biden himself isn't that bad, which seems like a kind of weird strategy. You know, I don't know. I think, look, Biden's up by eight or nine points. I, I think probably the penalty for being more left is not enough to make Sanders an underdog. I think he'd be the favorite, right? I actually think when we kind of look at this stuff and look at measuring ideology, it still seems to have an effect. Now, Bernie might have been effective for other reasons, right? Like, you know, one thing where I think the Biden people have not done very well is signing up new people to vote. They were not doing a lot of door knocking operations until recently. So Bernie would have done certain things better, I think. But I don't know. I mean, I'm someone who still believes in the in the median voter theorem, I suppose. Let me ask you about the flip of this, which is Donald Trump. So Trump has never won an election with more voters than the candidate he ran against. And he's obviously only been in one, but but then Republicans and his leadership lost in 2018 too. He has never been above 50% in, in average approval ratings. Does he underperform his own fundamentals? I mean, he, he, he was doing poorly during a pretty good economy and he's not done that differently under COVID. As we've said, it's been very, very stable, but it seems like possibly because people have made up their minds on him. Do you think another... Republican candidate, a generic Republican, would likely be in a stronger position today? Yeah. I mean, one big question that's pertinent both to the models, but also how we kind of think about this election is kind of where do the fundamentals point? In our specification, that's a very nerdy way to put it, right? But we actually think that a generic Republican should be running neck and neck with a generic Democrat because the economic recovery was pretty robust in the third quarter, although it's K-shaped, because you have an incumbent and incumbents usually get reelected more often than not, right? And you look at kind of around the world, approval ratings for many leaders went up because of COVID, even though if we're being frank, I mean, I think we're now counting on fewer and fewer fingers how many countries have handled it well throughout all these different surges and phases, right? Yeah, look, I think if Trump showed some basic empathy on COVID and did some of the blocking and tackling right, you know, and just kind of said the right things and and didn't actively get in the way of basic things that every country needs to do. And then we have this, you know, 30% GOP rebound in quarter three. I mean, I'm not sure that he'd be losing this campaign. At the very least, it might be close enough where this three-point electoral college edge would come in handy for him. So I, I do think that, like, he has not been a very effective politician from an electoral standpoint. And the kind of myth of, I mean, we kind of talked about this a little bit before, but, like, one input that you can have in your mental model of 2016 and 2020 and a lot of different things, right, might be that Hillary Clinton was not a very effective candidate. And we can debate why that was. But the fact that Trump won with a 40% favorability rating four years ago is because Clinton had a 41% favorability rating, right? Where Biden people just feel neutrally about, then all of a sudden Trump is exposed to someone whose unpopularity, despite his electoral college advantages, will probably probably cost him. I will say this has been something in the election that that violated my expectations, which is I assume Biden's approval numbers would go down um, as he became the general election nominee and he like got under Republican attack. And maybe in a world where there's no COVID or something, it would have looked differently. But they've gone up, which is not normal for this period. Um, I- I'm curious what you make of it. I mean, from the standpoint of your kind of working class white voter or something, Biden is going to feel a lot safer than other recent Democratic nominees, right? You had the first woman nominee of a major party and all that entails. You had the first African-American nominee of a major party and all that entails, right? In 2004, you had John Kerry, who is kind of way more identifiable as a coastal liberal elite than Joe Biden is, right? So maybe it's not surprising that Joe Biden is just kind of seen as being a, a more broadly acceptable choice, given the fact that you know perceptions of race and gender and whatever else have in American politics today. I don't know. It's, 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 you know, so much in politics is like kind of overgeneralizing based on small sample sizes, right? In 2008, both McCain and Obama were very popular. In 2000, believe it or not, both Bush and Gore were quite popular, right? I think in 2012, the Obama campaign really did a good job of defining Mitt Romney in negative ways, right? But I think both Trump and Clinton, I mean, whether it's because of how the media handles Clinton or her own fault or Trump or whatever else, right? I mean, I think they were, um, even if the trend is to have less popular candidates, even relative to that trend, 
they were fairly negative outliers, I think. And so I guess I'm not hugely surprised that Biden's, he's not, he's like a 50 50 basically, right? That doesn't hugely surprise me. So I, I want to indulge my fears here for a couple minutes at the end. So when we talk about elections, I think people mentally index to the idea that there are two outcomes, win or lose for a, a given candidate and or a given party. And in this election, it seems to me there are three. There's win, there's loss, and there's crisis. And when we talk about, say, the possibility of, let's call it a three or four point polling error in Donald Trump's direction, so that now the election is very close um, in the in the key swing states. That's a place where, particularly in a world of mail-in voting and COVID and the Supreme Court bringing down election you know, rulings, now with Amy Coney Barrett on there, with sort of weird rules about the second envelope in Pennsylvania and, and everything going on, where you could get into a real legitimacy crisis or a, a real crisis over who won. I mean, you talked about Bush v. Gore. I, I really worry that as crazy as that one was, if you replay that now, it gets a lot, a lot crazier. Um, this is not something in your models. Your, your model ex- explicitly does not try to to measure the effect of, of electoral chicanery. But I'm just curious how you think about that, because I think the zone of potential crisis here is, is pretty, it's a real possibility. So I think it might help to have four categories and not three, right? There's a Trump win. That's the one end. A Trump win that let's say is a legitimate Trump win, right? Where no one, where nonpartisan observers concede that Trump won, right? There is a Biden landslide where Biden's winning by, you know, eight points or more, right? I do think there is some room for like a solid Biden win that isn't in serious dispute. A six point Biden win nationally where he wins by three points in Pennsylvania. So, um, the naked ballots and the court rulings don't wind up mattering in that case. And there obviously is like a a fourth outcome where you have chaos potentially. But look, I think there are a couple of things to keep in mind. And I always worry about getting these conversations because like, because that chaos scenario is so bad that whether it's 2% or 5% or 15%, right? You still have to be very worried about it. And it's certainly somewhere in the low to mid single digits at least, if not a bit higher, Maybe quite a bit higher, although I don't think it's the modal outcome by any means. But a couple of counterpoints to that. Number one, people forget how close Florida was, right? It came down to 530 some, not 530, it was like 539 or 537 votes in the state with 10 million people, right? So that was not just within the recount margin, that was kind of exactly on the nose. And it's still quite ambiguous who ultimately really won Florida, depending on dimpled chads and the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County and everything else, right? Who actually went to the polls with intending to vote for whom in Florida, we don't really know who more voters preferred. Number two, if you have the most issue that like is most likely to affect the debate is ballots that are returned after election day. Number one, those are actually not that many ballots. And number two, they may not be as democratic as people assume because Democrats are being more diligent about sending their ballots in early. So if you look at mail ballots returns so far as when we're taping this, Democrats have around a 30-point edge on partisan ID of who has returned more bail ballots. If you look at the mail ballots that have not yet been returned but were requested, it's only plus 12D. So when I talked about before about how like attempts at voter suppression can backfire if they make the people you're trying to suppress more alert, you can imagine Democrats being more diligent about getting their ballots in early, finding different ways to vote, being more diligent about following all the rules, right? In which case, these things might not help the GOP. The last thing I think about a little bit is, is it harder or easier to vote than it has been in the past, right? Because if you're calibrating a model based on past history, the question is, there is always voter suppression, right? And it disproportionately affects people of color and people who are more likely to be Democrats. That's kind of priced into the models. If there's always been voter suppression, then your index in a particular state reflects that. However, it's probably easier to vote now in most states than it ever has been. Many states change the rules either temporarily or permanently because of COVID. So you have more access now to different ways to vote. In general, as Democrats have become more aware of voter suppression and the importance of it. You have seen, if you look at the Brennan Center, they have a write-up every year, which I'd recommend about, here are all the laws with respect to voting rights that passed in the past year, right? For the past couple of years, you've actually had more pro-voting laws than voter suppression laws, which is a different than the era from 2000 to 2020. 
16, right? It's a change in the past couple of years. So, um, so they're probably, it's probably easier to vote now than it has been in the past for most voters. And that could potentially help Democrats. It's a little bit like, oh, police body cams, I suppose, right? Where like, it's not like police just for the first time are beating up all these black people and disadvantaged people, right? Or abusing their powers, right? We're just kind of catching it now. When you have a much brighter spotlight on efforts to suppress the vote, and it becomes the fodder for discussion on podcasts and on blogs and the mainstream media, right? Then you discover like, hey, there are all these things that Republicans mostly are doing to make it harder for me to vote. You know, some of it's pretty bad, right? But it's kind of always been that way. And it may actually be be getting better in some states. I think it's a good semi-optimistic place to end. So I'm going to ask you always a final question here, which is three bucks you'd recommend to the audience. You know, I don't get to read as much this time of year. So I'll probably give some recommendations that I think your audience has already heard. In fact, one of them I heard about on your podcast. But I'll start with The Biggest Bluff, which is a book by Maria Konnikova, who is a New Yorker columnist. She is a friend of mine, but she decided a couple of years ago to spend a year learning how to play poker professionally. And it turns out that she's really amazing at poker and also kind of explaining this to everyday people. So I also read like a lot of very technical poker books, the way to exercise my brain. This is a book that you don't need necessarily technical knowledge of poker to appreciate. Um, it breaks things down in a way it's very smart, but you get to interesting areas, right? Where like, you know, one thing she tries to do is to take advantage of sexist men, basically, right? But you have to kind of figure out what type of sexist a man is, right? Where some men, when they're seeing a woman poker player, and women poker players are still pretty rare, right? They'll be very chauvinistic, try to buff way too much, right? Some will err in the opposite direction and be kind of, you know, chivalrous. Oh, well, you know, I know you could be never be bluffing, right? You know, I, I'll just fold my hand here and show you that he actually had a very strong hand, right? So kind of figuring out how to take advantage of people's biases, literally, is kind of a, a fun sidelight sidelight to that book. Number two, a book I'm pretty sure, I don't know if I recommended it last time or, or um, other people did, but the book Super Intelligence by Nick Bostrom, which is a very deep philosophical dive into artificial intelligence and just kind of like, if I'm not playing poker to distract myself, I just kind of want to make my brain think about interesting things. It's a, it's a very dense book. It's well-written, but it's not like easy reading, right? Like every paragraph has like six ideas embedded within it. And the third book is one I'm almost sure I heard uh, from this guy, I think it's on your show, if not, it was some other Vox network, but it's called The Precipice Existential Risk in the Future of Humanity by Toby Ord, where he also talks about AI, runaway AI and different existential threats. And just like, um, it is such a precise book going through and just thinking kind of, I mean, precise is just the word I keep wanting to use, right? But really kind of meticulous and kind of how it goes through and breaks down these threats and kind of forces itself not to stop on easy answers and to be really rigorous. That's a lot of what we try to do at 538. So I just appreciate both the subject and the approach that the book takes. Uh, now I want to have a whole other podcast with you about existential risk and, and AI. Yeah. <laughs> and if people are interested in that, um, Nate's right. Toby Ord was on the show. I'll, I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. Um, Nate, it's always a huge pleasure. Thank you very much. Definitely appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thank you to Nate for being here. Thank you to all of you, to Roja Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing, the Ezra Vox Media podcast production. <laughs>